Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hi, Akil. Uh, hey, Andy. I'm interrupting myself here to update things just a little bit. Since we recorded this, there was a deal reached on a framework to avoid the issues involved with exceeding the debt ceiling. By no means uh, does this, to borrow a somewhat analogous theme from recent podcasts, uh, render this moot for many reasons. First of all, um, the deal might not pass, and we would be right back where this podcast starts from, or worse. Second, the deal is a two-year one, so the issues may well be around in 2025, and in fact, it's possible that one or the other parties is counting on that. Finally, this is a podcast about the constitutional ecosphere, and we have a rare opportunity to explore a range of constitutional and related issues at a time of great relevance with the leading experts on both sides in conversation with each other. So you're in for a treat, and it will be well worth your time. And today, we do not have a special guest. We have two special guests. So why do we have two special guests? Well, it's because we're going to have a, a, a back and forth on an issue that everyone is thinking about. Uh, and I know Janet Yellen is thinking about it because we're close to June 1st, which she's uh, set forth as a deadline of sorts regarding the current debt ceiling crisis. And so we have two of the leading experts on this that have both written on it in recent days as well as earlier. Uh, plus, of course, we have Akil, who it turns out has also written on it, which we had forgotten about. But anyway, and now we, we so we'll be, we'll be referencing that. So uh, we have today uh, Professor Jack Balkan, who was with us earlier, and I'll introduce him briefly again, and Professor Sai Prakash, Sai Krishna Prakash. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, Professor Prakash. He's the uh, James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia uh, Law School. Uh, he attended Stanford University and the Yale Law School, and at the latter, he served as the a senior editor of the Yale Law Journal, and later and he received the John M. Olin Fellowship in Law, Economics, and Public Policy. Later, he clerked for Judge Lawrence Silverman on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and for Justice Clarence Thomas on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, then he practiced law in New York for a couple of years, and then he began his academic career at the University of Illinois College of Law, onto BU School of Law, University of San Diego, before uh, coming to the University of Virginia. He also served as a James Madison Fellow at Princeton and a Visiting Research Fellow at the Hoover Institute. He's the author of several books, including the 2020 book, uh, The Living Presidency, an originalist argument against its ever-expanding powers. He's authored over 75 scholarly articles, and he focuses especially on separation of powers and within that particularly executive powers. He writes extensively in the popular press, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, has testified before Congress at the request of Democrats and Republicans on matters of presidential removal, the Mueller report, and how Congress might better check the presidency. He's the recipient of numerous awards, including the Roger Trainer Award for Faculty Scholarship, and he's now a senior fellow of the Miller Center. So please welcome uh, to America's Constitution, Sai Prakash. Welcome, Professor Prakash. It's great to be here. Thank you. And we also have, once again, Jack Balkan, and our listeners will remember Professor Balkan from our earlier podcast on the debt ceiling, where he presented a 
a brilliant originalist analysis of the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 4, which deals with the validity of the debt and, of course, as much in the news. And we presented his lengthy credentials at that time, but just to remind our listeners, he's the Knight Professor of Constitutional Law and the First Amendment at the Yale Law School and founder and director of Yale's Information Society Project. Um, he directs the Abrams Institute for Freedom of Expression uh, and the the uh, Night Law and Media Program. And many will know him from his longtime uh, pioneering and indispensable uh, blog, Balkanization. So welcome back, Jack. Thank you, Andy. So, Akil, why don't you tell me how you know these guys? Uh, and um, also just say a little bit about how this is a first for our podcast. We pride ourselves on bringing to our audience the best voices, the smartest folks on issue after issue after issue. And we bring them from the right of the spectrum, people like Ed Whalen, people like Steve Calabresi. We bring them from the left of the spectrum, people like Kate Shaw, Linda Greenhouse, many, many others, of course. This is our first episode, I think, in which we brought two people together simultaneously, crossfire fashion. And I want everyone to understand at the outset that they're going to get a great and vigorous discussion, a frank and candid exchange of opinions as a diplomat might say, but they're not going to get a food fight because that's not what we do on a Marcus Constitution. Indeed, we've picked for this episode two people, and I'll tell you a little bit about my personal connections to each of them because they're friends as well as colleagues. We've picked, I think, the two most preeminent people on this topic, and they have somewhat different points of view, although they may converge. One thing that maybe wasn't mentioned about Sai on this particular topic is that he's worked at OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, as well as being a constitutional guru across the, the board. But since you asked me about my connections, Jack is my senior colleague at Yale Law School. He's, uh, which means, I'm just, it's my way of reminding him that, you know, I'm only 64. Yeah. <laughs> um, but more precisely, actually informally, he is the my senior colleague on a casebook that we both work on. It used to be Paul Brest casebook, just Brest, and then it was Brest Levinson, and then it became Brest Levinson Balkan Amar, and, and now it's Levinson, Balkan, Amar, uh, Siegel, Rodriguez, but you get the point. But, but Balkan comes before Amar, not alphabetically, but in seniority and in um, the work that is done on, on the casebook. So Jack's my a colleague at Yale Law School and uh, my colleague on the casebook and my friend. And, and I like to think that I'm one of the people that brought Jack onto the faculty way back when, when I started to read his work and said, wow. Jack is also a preeminent originalist, okay? And he's, in general, on the left of the political spectrum, as am I. Jack maybe is maybe more to my left. Sai is also a preeminent originalist. He is more on the right of the political spectrum, although, you know, if you're an originalist, uh, sometimes you're going to say things that, that, if you're a, a really faithful and honest one, that, that don't always correspond to this political ideology or that one in the moment. Sai was one of my star students at Yale Law School. You mentioned that he was a lead editor of the 
Yale Law Journal. He wrote his major piece of scholarship, maybe his first important piece of legal scholarship under my supervision at Yale. We call it the SAW or the SAW, Supervised Analytic Writing. It was later published as an article, a standalone article, not merely as a student note, but as a standalone article in, I believe it was the University of Virginia Law Review. It's called Field Office Federalism. It's about the Tenth Amendment and the commandeering of states. It's been cited by the United States Supreme Court. And I remember writing size clerkship letter of recommendation uh, to folks like Judge Silverman and Justice Thomas way back when. Maybe one other thing to mention, just because I want our audience to understand what a special treat they, they are going to have today, hearing from the most significant voices. This isn't just my view. This is the view of the larger legal community. I think in the last 10 years or so, Cy ranks as one of the three, maybe the two most, three or four most cited people by scholars by the United States Supreme Court. Jack ranks as one of the two or three um, or four you know, most cited people in, in recent years by the Legal Academy. And that's interesting. And those are two slightly different interpretive communities, and they overlap and also diverge. And Sai is an originalist, a preeminent originalist, and Jack is an originalist, a preeminent originalist. So am I. It'll be very interesting to hear where the three of us agree and where we disagree. Okay, so to that end, as I said, I read um, Sai's piece in the Wall Street Journal, which was called The 14th Amendment Option, that's in quotes, is a trap for Biden. And he's, and the sub, subtext here so it says, if he borrows money without congressional approval, the U.S. could later repudiate that debt. And of course, as we know, you know, we're coming up against the, what some people say uh, would, might be a, a default, where the U.S. Uh, has borrowed as much as it's allowed to borrow under the debt ceiling and can't borrow any more, maybe. Um, and uh, and some people say that, that would cause a default. And there's some people say, well, that's unconstitutional because of uh, the fourth section of the 14th Amendment. I'm just going to read it. The validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned. And then there's another clause that goes on to talk about basically how uh, Confederate debt is not, val- is not valid. And that's important, but the actual wording perhaps not as much so. Okay, now, um, so, uh, Cy, in your article here, I'm going to read back something that you say, and I'd like you uh, to maybe elaborate on it and then Jack to comment on it. You say... The 14th Amendment is often cited but rarely quoted. Section 4 both repudiates Confederate debt and promises to honor U.S. debt. The provision at issue provides, and then the validity of the public debt, which I just read. Section 4 doesn't address default or other failures to honor terms of a debt contract. It bars repudiation. A debtor who is late on a payment isn't questioning the debt's validity. He's merely tardy. To my knowledge, no one on either side of the debate is suggesting that the U.S. repudiate its debt. So, I mean, if you're right about that, that uh, presumably that would take the, that section of the Constitution out of the equation here. Um, but uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, because it's, why is everyone saying that this would be a default and you're not? Well, I, you know, I think there are you know, many motivations for saying that 
failure to pay the debt would be questioning its validity. Um, I think some people, you know, are genuinely concerned about failure to pay the debt and what that would mean for America and her ability to borrow debt in the future, because presumably would have to pay higher interest in the future if it if it defaulted. And so I, you know, I want to make clear I'm not for default. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I do want the debt paid. I just don't think the 14th Amendment addresses default as opposed to repudiation, right? Again, I think that someone who is late on a payment, you know, um, on a bond or late paying rent isn't questioning the validity of the rental contract or isn't questioning the validity of the bond contract, the indenture. They're just not making the payment for whatever reason, good or bad. And if it's a, you know, if it's a bad reason that that ought to be condemned and maybe this, you know, failure to pay the interest in these contexts would be, you know, given the political situation, you know, may or may not be a, a bad reason. I, well, I just don't think it addresses um, uh, default as opposed to repudiation. I don't think that's what question the validity would ordinarily be understood to mean. And I haven't really come across anybody saying that default as opposed from, uh, you know, any anyone from the fa that era saying that that default itself is a problem as opposed to repudiation. Jack, and your comments on this? Well, so I want to read a, a quotation from the current leader of the Republican Party. This is consistent with what Sai said, but I'm interested in how he phrased it. So this is from an article on uh, CNBC from uh, May 10th. Former President Donald Trump on Wednesday urged Republican lawmakers to let the United States default on its debt if Democrats don't agree to spending cuts. Quote, I say to the Republicans out there, congressmen, senators, if they don't give you massive cuts, you're going to have to do a default, said Trump, who is again running for president's. And I don't believe they're going to do a default because I think the Democrats will absolutely cave, will absolutely cave because you don't want to have that happen. But it's better than what we're doing right now because we're spending money like drunken sailors. Because that's a quote from Trump. Now, what Trump is suggesting, and he's actually saying the quiet part out loud, although Matt Gates also did say something similar, uh, is uh, we're going to hold the uh, the debt hostage unless you adopt a domestic program that's to our liking. So we're going to repeal various uh, um, democratic programs. Maybe we'll lower some taxes. Uh, maybe we'll add some work requirements. Uh, you know, a whole bunch of different things. It's like a wish list. Now, the question is, that's not necessarily, I, I agree with that. That doesn't seem like a repudiation of the debt. What it is, however, is a threat to default if we don't get our way. Now, so the question is, how do we interpret the meaning of the word questioned, which is the key uh, point. And Sai is right that doesn't say repudiate, just says questioned. So there are broader and narrower conceptions of what question would mean. And so that's what we have to do. Now, one tool, originalist tool, for interpreting the Constitution is to look at the circumstances under which the text was adopted and ask whether or not that sheds any light on the proper construction of the term questioned. So it turns out that when the Reconstruction Congress is considering Section 4, they're considering a scenario exactly like what Donald Trump is describing. That is, the concern was that the former Confederates had told the people they had borrowed, uh, they had borrowed money from, don't worry, the Confederate debt is not worthless, we'll get it paid. And so the Republicans in Congress were worried that they would hold union debt hostage in order to get Confederate debt paid. That's why what you have is a belt and suspenders language in Article 4, which is, we don't question the federal debt, and by the way, 
ain't we ain't going to pay the Confederate debt. And so if you think about the actual circumstances that produce the language, they seem eerily similar to the problem we're now facing. You have one political party that is trying to use the debt as a lever, as a lever, as Trump says, leverages everything in order to get its way. So from that, that is an argument, I think, maybe it's not a conclusive argument, that's an argument for treating the word questioned as applying to threats of default if you don't get your way in politics. Sorry, si, what would you say back to that? I mean, there's a factual question. We're going to I mean, skip to the end of the op-ed that I wrote about whether we're actually going to default if right. we don't raise the debt ceiling. And I think that's just silly because there's plenty of money in the Treasury to pay the interest. And so to talk of, you know, quoting Donald Trump is fun because he says all sorts of crazy things, but he's not a source of authority for whether there's enough money in the Treasury to pay the interest on the bonds that are currently outstanding. And of course, there is. There's plenty of money to pay the interest on the debt. I do want to get to that question, and I suspect we may find some agreement on that question. But I'd like to, to get your response to what Jack has said about your argument that uh, really, which is essentially that, you know, you make several arguments, but the one I read read to you is essentially mm-hmm. that Section 4 doesn't apply because uh, it's not, because it doesn't address defaulted addresses, repudiation, whatever. And Jack's saying, well, the word is question, and, you know, here's the exact scenario that they, that they used in order to write that language. They were trying to accomplish something. They were trying to accomplish, the, to prevent the, uh, the Democrats, essentially, the Southerners, from uh, using a threat of a default uh, as, a, as a weapon. And, so that, and for, for that reason, they wrote this language. And their, their understanding was writing this language would prevent that. So, so well, I mean, you know, they also knew the word default, right? And so they could have said, if you default on the debt, you're violating the 14th Amendment. Instead, they used a, a particular word that suggests repudiation and not default. I, I think, you know, I, I mean, let's 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 take let's let's assume the Constitution said what Jack thinks it says, which is you can't default. No, 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 that's not what I said. So we may be closer than you think. Okay. The, the claim is that there's a certain course of conduct that the 14th Amendment says you can't engage in. And so the claim is not that you can't default. If we don't have enough money, we might default. You can't threaten to default in order to gain, to use it as leverage. So in the right. case of in 1866, it's getting con- 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 Confederate bonds paid uh, at 100% or whatever it is. And today it's enacting the Republican domestic program. So the right. claim is that that's inconsistent with the the constitutional guarantee. Now, there's a completely different set of questions. One is who enforces it? What triggers a remedy? What would the remedy be? These are all questions that we haven't even got to yet. What I'm just simply claiming is that there there is a constitutional duty not to use the threat of default to gain political leverage. Right. And so this actually takes me to my next point. Let's assume that let's just say that what Jack said is absolutely right. There are multiple ways to prevent default. One way is to pass a clean debt ceiling. Another way is to pass a debt ceiling that gives into what Jack calls the hostage takers. If the president really believes that the Constitution requires him to make sure that there's no default, then he ought to concede to the Republicans. Like perversely, Jack's argument suggests that everybody ought to concede to the people that he believes are being most unreasonable. Moreover, it suggests that the president could raise taxes or do other things that would prevent a default, right? And no one's saying any of those things because 
the people that are making this argument are only focused on raising the debt ceiling in order to do what? In order to spend the money that Congress already appropriated. The further thing I'd say is, you know, it's easy to call the Republicans hostage takers. People are doing it on the left. But I think it's a silly argument. There is a statute that has a debt ceiling. They are now deciding whether to amend the statute. That is a political negotiation between two different political groups that have different interests and different purposes. I, I hope and assume that they're both trying to make the United States better. But to say that one side is taking the other side hostage because they have a difference of opinion seems to me just inflammatory and, uh, quite frankly, I think unhelpful to the situation. I can understand why someone thinks we should not be cutting these programs. Um, but why that's the natural view as opposed to the Republican view, to me, is not obvious at all. I, mean, I actually have the view that we should be cutting a lot of these programs. Federal spending has gone up quite a bit in the last three or four years. But in any event, if you believe what Jack is saying, why doesn't the president have an obligation to sign any bill that the Republicans propose in order to avoid this problem with the debt ceiling? Uh, sorry, to in order to avoid this problem of possible default. And why isn't the, the president equally guilty of the sin that Jack is accusing the Republicans of by threatening default, by not uh, immediately agreeing to the Republican proposal? I, I just don't see how this proposal, this this theory doesn't mean that it's a pox and anyone who has a backbone in this situation is trying to fight the other side. Well, Jack, would you say that what Cy just put forth is analogous to the idea that they well then why didn't the north the northern representatives just agree to to validate the confederate debt um i mean that seems to me quite quite analogous so uh, you know there's a political um agenda that one side has and they're trying to enact it by using the threat of default arguably um and that's precisely what the 14th amendment was designed not to do is that, a, is that a correct interpretation of your point of view? Well, I mean, I, the whole point of the Constitution was not to make it symmetrical. I mean, the whole point of Section 4 is that it's not a symmetrical position. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I don't characterize the situation the way the Psy does. I don't think the char Constitution characterizes the situation the way Psy does. Here's another way of looking at it, which is not about the Constitution. It's just about bargaining. Suppose that I come to Sai and I say, Sai, I want you to give me your car. And if you don't give me your car, I'm going to blow us both up. Right? So it's something that supposedly I don't want and he doesn't want either. But I'm going to blow you both up if you don't give me your car. Now, the question is, is Sai taking me hostage? I don't think so. I think I'm taking Sai hostage. And similarly, in the case of the Republican Party's relationship to the Democratic Party, the Republican Party should be uh, on the view that it is a terrible thing to default on the nation's debts. It would damage the country. It would be a terrible thing to do to the country. You see? It's not in the public interest to default on our debts. All sorts of the interest rates will go up. We may have a recession. We may cause worldwide calamity. So in other words, this is a, this is a threat to do something which would be harmful to the country itself. But the Democrats aren't threatening to do something harmful to the country itself. They are basically saying, we will just sign a debt, give us a debt ceiling, we'll sign it. Okay, let's go on. The Republicans are saying, we won't sign the debt ceiling unless you give us our domestic agenda, which, by the way, we can't enact ourselves because we don't control the White House or the Senate. 
Uh, and so it looks to me like they're more like the person saying, I'll blow us both up if you don't give me what I want, which it seems to me is a terrorist view, not just a hostage view. Now, again, I don't want to say the Republicans are terrorists. I'm just going to say that the analogy I just gave is one in which we would not assume that the person being threatened is the host- is taking hostages. Just to respond to yeah. that, suppose you have the belief, you have the sincere belief that the amount of debt that we have is too high and that the amount of spending is too high and that that's the catastrophe facing the country. And then you face a president who says, no, I'm not going to sign any legislation that reduces the amount of spending. Then you can imagine that that president's doing the hostage taking. Now, well, this is not, by the way, uh, si, that's not quite accurate, because remember, the debt ceiling is does not reduce spending. The debt ceiling simply is about how you pay for debts already incurred. Okay, so I I understand because I just don't want to use loose language here. And I understand what Well, no, that's not quite true, Jack, because the question that the the spending hasn't occurred yet. That's why we're having this discussion, right? If, if, If the spending had already occurred without the money in the coffers, that would be it. That would be a serious problem. But I don't I mean, I just don't agree with your framing that anyone who I mean, you want to frame this as a debt increase. Obviously, the other side frames it as what? a debt increase coupled with spending cuts. Now, there's no neutral way of deciding which framing to adopt. You want to adopt a particular framing. They want to adopt another one. And I, I don't see how yours is obviously right and theirs is wrong. And and again, l- let's imagine that, you, you know, there's a side who thinks, and I think they, some of them do think that some of them are just politicians and they're crass, that there's too much spending and that that's the catastrophe. And then the, they find a president who says, no, 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 I will not cut spending. You can imagine that they believe he's the hostage. He's not willing to do what's in the best interest of America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I just, I mean, you can, like, people can frame it however they want to. There's a constitutional question and there's a statutory question. Donald um, Trump has said he wants to, you know, default on the debt. I don't think any responsible member of Congress has said any such thing. Other and than that, Gates, I wouldn't attribute course, Donald Trump's position, you know, or Donald Trump's command of the facts with the real world, there is plenty of money to pay the debt, right? That, I mean, this gets us to the last point. This is not about the debt default. It's about government spending. Anyone who knows what, how much money is coming in every month knows that they can pay the interest. So it's really about funding ongoing programs and not – so to talk about the for them at all, I think, is a red herring. In this you, raised a very, you raised a very good point, so I want to show a point of agreement between Cy and I. Mm-hmm. The question is that you can't question the debt of the United States. Not all government expenditures are questions of debt. And Sai makes a very good point, and I just want to emphasize, because help us understand what's going on forward. The question is, will the United States have enough money coming in through collection of taxes each day, right, or other revenues, uh, 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 customs, et cetera, to pay whatever is defined as the debt, the public debt of the United States? What Sai is saying is that the amount of money that's coming in and will come in each day, will be sufficient to pay whatever we do, whatever. There's another question is, what's the public debt of the United States? But let's suppose we take it as a very narrow def- definition of the public debt. What Cy could be saying, and I think he's saying is, look, there's money coming in all the time. That money can be diverted to pay the public debt of the United States. And so what that means is, is that other programs uh, won't be paid for. So we'll have a government shutdown. Yes. Would you agree with me? That's the way you're you're thinking about it, Sai? 
Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. There's like, there's no, I mean, this, this whole talk about a debt, you know, a, a default is a red herring. Yeah. Everybody knows that there's enough money to pay the interest and they're using the threat. They're using, and I would, I mean, to use, to, to, to use Jack's language, they are talking about a threatened default to get a political advantage. And when I mean they, I mean, basically the far left, right? Or people who want the current level of spending. So if, if Jack's theory of the 14th Amendment is right, they're guilty of violating the 14th Amendment no less than the Republicans, because they are talking about default over and over again, as if that's going to actually happen when it's not. The only no. way it would happen is if, the, if, the, is if Joe Biden just said, I don't care about Jack's reading of the 14th Amendment. I don't care about default. I'm not going to pay off the interest. Right. So uh, I, uh, you and I both assume that the president's first duty is to pay off the interest on the public debt. There's another question as to what the public debt is. If the public debt is narrower, it's easier to pay it off. If it's larger, it's harder to pay it off. There's another issue. So the view that I took in 2011 in the CNN article was that, that if nothing happens, then we have a partial government shutdown. Then the question would be, is enough income coming in every day to pay off the debt, however it's defined? At some point, if enough government uh, functions basically stop, so in other words, the custom, you know, the ports basically close, you're not collecting customs anymore, the IRS goes home, you're not collecting tax revenues, at some point there might not even be enough money coming in that can be used to pay the debt, however defined. And at that point, we really do have something. In the CNN article in 2011, I said we're not, we're not there immediately. What's so, much more likely to happen first is a partial government shutdown, which will put enormous pressure on the markets, which in turn will put enormous pressure on Congress to, to resolve the situation. That's how I thought about it. So it's, so Sai makes an important point, and I want to distinguish it. There's the point at which you don't have enough money to pay the debt, and there's the, mon- uh, and there's the money at which you don't have enough money uh, to pay current, op- uh, current things you spend money on. The first one happens first. I mean, the second one happens first. The The point at which you don't have enough revenue to pay the debt happens a little bit later down the road. It's not true, however, mm-hmm. and I don't think Sai is assert- asserting this, that it, it could go on this way indefinitely. At some point, if you close enough of the government down, you're just not going to collect enough revenue even to pay the debt. There's an, And then there's also a, a question is, how big is the debt? Does the debt include Social Security or does it only include bonds? The text is ambiguous on this because the text talks about bounties and pensions uh, in the same breath as talking about debt. So, But they're not thinking about the modern welfare state as we know it at the time. And so we have an ambiguity as to what, how big the debt, the public debt is. Okay. Yeah. So just to throw some numbers at, at that, um, so uh, I think people can get a perspective on it because it, I think it's relevant whether, okay, yeah, maybe we won't def- default on June 1st, but we would on July 1st, you know, or something like that. Um, or would it be, you know, 10 years from now? So, so um, this year... Uh, the U.S., uh, according to the Treasury Department's website, um, has collected $2.69 trillion in revenue um, in fiscal year 2023. And uh, the interest on the debt, so, you know, that's kind of the, I think, the narrowest definition one might come up with of the, of the you know, the, the, the public debt uh, is about $350 billion for the year. So a very small, uh, and now of course there's principal, but presumably you could, you could refinance that, or you know, or, or do some kind of swap or something like that. So there are financial instruments uh, that that might allow you to put that off. So so if you want the absolute narrowest definition, I think that's probably it. Um, and 
So you could say, well, like you said, you know, the revenue is going to drop because the economy is going to slow down, but that's a lot of slowdown that you'd have to have. And you say, well, there's no IRS agents, but there's nothing forcing President Biden to shut down the IRS. In other words, you know, there's enough uh, excess revenue there, you know, that, that anything that produces a net positive revenue flow, he could do. And I think you could make an argument that he's obligated to do. Um, it, you know, it, it, at least at some point when you get close to having having to default. And this, in, in part, and I know Akil is just bursting at the seams, and this is in part what he wrote about uh, in 2015, so I'm going to let him uh, stick stick his, uh, his voice in here. I, I avoided <laughs> nose because you and I here are, are in the we're in the nose group of, uh, of the... Uh, so anyway, uh, go for it, Akil. So um, this is great. I agree with Jack that there's actually much more agreement among, in fact, the four of us than one might think. I I love the back and forth. If you say, and Sai's point is, the 14th Amendment actually doesn't prohibit default. It prohibits kind of repudiation and no one's really repudiating. That's the narrowest definition. And then you're saying the 14th Amendment almost has nothing to do with it. Jack comes back and says, yeah, but the 14th Amendment is not just about narrow default. It's actually a codifying a larger principle, a principle of kind of political morality, not to use actually debts that we legitimately owe to people who have lent us money, especially to win wars or people who have fought wars and got pensions for um, war pensions for their war service. There's a principle underlying the 14th Amendment to not use the issue of repaying what we legitimately owe for service, past services rendered as a political football in any way, because that's actually what um, the language is about questioning. Okay. And, um, and then he says, and that's what Donald Trump seems pretty openly to be um, about. Sai comes back and I'm with Sai on this saying, oh, right back at you, brother, because the Democrats and Biden are doing something similar in not saying clearly to everyone what all four of us have said, which is we're just talking about shutdown. The debts are always going to be prioritized and there is enough money for, for the foreseeable future coming in unless we shut down the IRS and the customs office. So so Biden hasn't said, Yellen hasn't said, the New York Times isn't saying this is not actually threatening T-bills. This is about whether the, um, the national parks are going to be able to continue to be um, open for um, services that have yet to be performed for the United States, uh, staffing Yellowstone and national park in June and July and all the rest. And and Biden, Sai says, should be saying that so that everyone understands we're not talking about actually that the debt, we're talking about a version of shutdown. And and Jack said that back in 2011. And I said that back in 2015. We'll put these pieces up on, on the website. And Sai is saying the same thing very recently, saying more than enough money. And, and, and Andy just said the same thing. More than enough money is coming in, way more to pay the debt narrowly understood, especially if we continue to, to fund the things that are generating more revenue than they're costing, like the IRS and, and the Customs House. 
I want to make two other points. Before so, you go so to those actually, points, Akil, let me just, I, I, I want to- Radical agreement among the four of us. Yes, but you said something which I think didn't quite characterize something that Sai said accurately. Uh, you know, you said that all Sai is saying that is that it's not about, it's not about uh, default, it's about shutdown. But in fact, he said earlier that um, that Biden has an, might have an obligation to accept the Republicans' terms you know, if, if if this were in the context of, of a default, and let, well, me let, you- let me let me just bracket that just for a moment, okay? I'm just okay. Uh, let me just take the best arguments as I see them on each side and, and get to um, a certain convergence. Um, I want to identify two other things. One, I want to talk about a word questioned, which is an interesting word. And the second, I want to talk about the history behind the Fourteenth Amendment because I think actually Jack as an expert on that, and has taught me things. What originalism is about, and uh, the three uh, academic here are originalists, and, and, and Andy actually, I think, is very much on board with that. Originalism is about, among other things, text meets history and putting things in a larger constitutional structural context. So two points. One is, Jack says, let's understand what the political context was on the historical context of the 14th Amendment. And it was about actually a concern of extortion and blackmail and, and the like. And that's very interesting. And I actually didn't know all of that before Jack came on the last episode. Now, originalism is always going to face an issue. And, and, and I've learned stuff like this from people like Jack, who in his early, Jack's like Picasso. He has, he's had many, you know, phases and, and stages, but the early Jack is a deconstructionist of a certain sort. And you see historical episodes don't interpret themselves and how narrowly or broadly we understand, even if we understand, if we have a complete agreement about what 1866, 68 was all about, is it exactly the same as today or is it, you know, slightly different? Could we distinguish it? How broadly or narrowly do we understand this? Don't question the, the, the debt as a, as a constitutional principle. It's now not just a principle of political morality, but of constitutional structure and morality. How broadly or narrowly do we um, understand that? And I am actually with science thinking both sides are actually playing games a little bit. I'm with this, but Biden, by not just making absolutely clear to everyone that, of course, we're going to pay the debt. And then what we're talking about is whether we have enough money for everything else. Final point. So that's the point about history. Jack has actually done, in my view, extraordinary historical work on the background, not just of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which people talk about privileges and use clause, due process, citizenship, you know, stuff that's, uh, that, uh, that everyone in con law uh, one learns, but but Jack and I are interested in, oh, section two, that's actually about voting rights. And section three, that's about an insurrection. What happens if you support an insurrection? Are you eligible to serve in, in, in government? Gerard Magliocca, for example, is very interested in that and writes about that on balkanization. And section four, what about the Confederate debt? And what about the U.S. debt, especially to the soldiers who fought and the uh, the, the lenders who loaned? Okay, so Jack is saying, you need to understand what the 14th Amendment as a whole was all about. And he's taught me a lot about that. That's history. I want to say one final thing, because we got three originalists here, and this is actually an interesting originalist thing I'm about to say. The word that we're partly really talking about actually is not default or renounce. It's questioned. Okay, now, 
Here's the Amar move. Where have you seen that word before? In the Constitution. This is what's called intratextualism. And the person, and I didn't even see it except, you know, and I don't tweet because people on Twitter, ooh. Are you thinking just, about speech or debate? Yes. My friend Dan Farber, because the only thing I do on Twitter is you know, see people saying nasty things about me and feel bad. And I shouldn't even, I, and Andy says, why are you doing this? You know, stop doing this to yourself. But Dan Farber said, here's an Akil Amar-like question or I- issue. Should we think about the 14th Amendment word questioned intratextually alongside another word that's earlier in the Constitution? Let me just read you the sentence. Um, and Jack, you just read my mind. Members of Congress shall, for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. And that's kind of a really, that, that's generated its, its own sort of discourse. And if you are an intratextualist, as am I, you don't think that, that the word has to mean that, that appears uh, in different places in a document always and everywhere has to mean the exact same thing. That's just not how language works. That's not how a document works. But you at least might want to ask yourself, um, is there any guidance at all that we might get by looking, if we really understand that textually we're in part thinking about this word questioned, by focusing on the fact that it appeared earlier in the Constitution and the framers of the 14th Amendment who are adding, uh, making an amendment to an existing Constitution are using a, a word that's appeared before that may have a gloss. And that's an interesting little issue, intratextualism. And, and Sai has written about this, actually, about whether the, the word commerce in the so-called commerce clause actually means the same thing when applied to foreign nations, when applied to Indian tribes, and when applied to commerce between the states. Jack has written about this, especially in, in, you know, in, in these contexts as well. Sai and I agree on this point, and we disagree with Adrian Vermeule on this point. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, look, Audience members, you need to understand, and our guest gave us a little bit of a show, you know, going back and forth, but truthfully, we're going to converge in large part in result because we really think, in fact, it's about shutdown and not a repudiation of the T-bills, in fact. But then the second point is, we're since we're all originalists, there are these interesting method questions. How narrowly or broadly do you understand the historical context and what's similar or not? And intratextually, since we're actually talking about a word question, is there anything at all that my colleagues here, Sai and Jack, can deduce or not from the fact that this word questioned appears earlier in the Constitution? That's the question that Dan Farber asked on Twitter, mentioning my name, and I think it's a good one. And a big shout out to you, Dan, who who in earlier work worked very closely with our mutual friend and colleague, um, Bill Eskridge, in all sorts of great scholarship. Okay, so do do either of you think that there's anything there with questioned? Well, um, I'll, let me ask Akil a question, and that might be the way into asking into solving the problem. So it's my understanding that at the at the uh, at the least, at the smallest, the speech or debate clause means that you can't bring a cause of action, civil or criminal, against a representative or senator for remarks they made on the floor of the Senate. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. Then the question is ah. uh, under that. So that is while they're in their official capacity as representing. So mm-hmm. in other words, so there is a narrower and a broader conception of speech or debate. The narrowest is. conception is, is what you're doing on the floor. Right. The broader conception is when you're actually engaged in the process of being a representative. Yes. So the gravel case is the case that has a slightly broader reading. Right. A uh, Mike Gravel. Right. Right. 
who, according to Wikipedia, actually once said that um, he thought I should be on the Supreme Court. And I loved Mike Gravel, but no, I should never have been on the Supreme Court. So tell us, tell us what the Gravel case says, because I think it's, it's what it's the, it's. Well, it's just like historical episodes aren't self interpreting. Neither are words and they can be read, you know, narrowly or more broadly as metaphoric. Do we actually think that, that, um, life and or limb in the fifth amendment just means life or limb? So, hey, you can have double jeopardy. You can try someone for the same offense as long as you're only going to put them in, in jail for the rest of their prison for the rest of their lives. Cause hey, that's right. not their, that's not their neck. That's not their life. We're not, it's not capital punishment. It's not their limb. We're not chopping off an arm or a leg uh, or a hand. Or do we read life or limb as a meta serious punishment? Do we read speech narrowly and debate narrowly and question narrowly? Or do we read them sort of more broadly and structurally? And, and it's a similar issue. But anyway, this is just a primer on originalism. And I couldn't resist the uh, invitation to just mention intratextualism, how Sai and Jack and I all, for example, think, I believe, that in thinking about the words privileges, immunities, and citizens in section one of the 14th Amendment, you've got to think about those words in Article 4 of the Constitution, which is an interstate provision. In thinking about the words due process in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, due process of law, you need to think about those words in the Fifth Amendment. And here's yet another example of that. And I don't know if Sai had thought about this or or Jack. Sai, Jack has weighed in a bit. Had you actually focused on this word questioned? Well, I, w- I want to say, first of all, that I do think we agree on a lot. And I, I want to say my, you know, I, I've long admired Jack's work. And my only regret was he wasn't at Yale Law School when I was there. And of course. So you had to take me instead. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, of course, Akil was my mentor. So I've, I've learned so much from him. And so let me let me actually take up Akil's question in light of what Jack said earlier about the other clause the, the, in, in Section 4 and ask the hypothetical. Let's suppose you're at a town meeting with your representative and you say, you said this on the floor. And why did you say that? It was terrible. I think we would all agree that that's not within the meaning of the clause. At least I would hope that we would agree that's not within the clause. But I think the way that Jack's reading it, if you say anything, I mean, I don't think Republicans are doing this besides Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is, you know, his own, own creature. You know, if you say something suggesting you're not going to give a clean, you know, a clean debt ceiling thing, that you've somehow questioned the validity of of the federal debt. And so it's it's actually a much broader reading than I think we would normally give to the, you know, the speech and debate clause of, of Article one. That, But that's consistent with Akil's view that they don't have to mean the exact same thing. So, so um, just on, on that, it's a beautiful illustration because because. Look, and we're, I know we're straying a little bit. Our, this podcast is about method as well as substance, and method is a real interest of mine more, more generally. In Britain, they, the speech and debate clause actually originates in Britain. Parliament is the place where people speak from the French Pavlet to speak. So it's originally about legislative speech and debate. And Parliament actually takes the position that if you actually just have the audacity, the temerity to actually ask a member of parliament, why did you say that? You know, they, they say, you are questioning, you know, what I said. This is British law and that's a libel and you can be actually punished for having the temerity to actually. So this is now a deep theoretical point. The same words in American popular sovereignty system 
means something much different, more narrow than in a British parliamentary sovereignty system. In Britain, actually, the idea is that um, speech and debate can't be questioned actually led people to being prosecuted for just criticizing what their representatives in parliament had actually said. And in America, we don't do that. So this is another point about originalism. Well done. It's about text. Yes, it's about history and whether we and the text can be read narrowly or broadly. And it's about history and and how we understand really what the moment was all about in 1866, 68. And I've learned a lot from Jack. It's also about structure. So on speech and debate, the British structure is parliamentary sovereignty. They are legally superior to the subjects and they're actually socially superior. And it is impudent and um, literally, this is what they would say, impudent and improper for a mere subject to question what was said by his lordship. And that's not the American view, not just because of text, not just because of history, but because of the structure of American popular sovereignty ideology. Yeah, but I think that the that the the wording of the question in the Fourteenth Amendment does set up a hierarchy of sorts. You know, it's it it's saying that there that that uh, when to me anyway that based on the history that Jack related, that normally when you have legislative debates, you can say, okay, if you vote for this, I'll vote for that. You know, or if you, you know, I'll, I'll do something if you pass this thing that, that I want. But it, to me, it's saying one thing that you can't use as a legislative technique yes. in bargaining is to say, unless you pass this thing that I want, then the debt will, will be, will, de- right. will default. And, and here's what Sai said in response that I actually think that Sai saying truthfully, both sides are playing that game a little bit. The Republicans by threatening all sorts of dire consequences and the Democrats by not saying, actually, you know, none of us is really talking about not paying the, the Treasury bills yes. or the pensions. Yes, but well, so, here, but, so here I have to uh, here, here I have to uh, express vociferous agreement. But now we have to, <laughs> but now we have to uh, add a few more wrinkles. So the first wrinkle this is, is this guy, guys, this is fun. By the way, by, and those of you just listening to the audience, we get paid to do this stuff and we're and we're offering it for free to you all. But but this is what actually academics see. And and, and we haven't been mean and, and we haven't, you know, you know, genuine ignorance, slut and all the rest. And and we disagree about some things. But this is what it's supposed to be, by the way, in, in the academy, which is, by the way, why we need in ideological diversity at our great universities. Please, Jack. I was just going to say there are a couple of wrinkles you have to take into account here. Some of them are political and some of them are legal. Let's do the legal, uh, political, and then we'll do the legal. The political is that, in fact, the Democrats are actually uh, trying to to tell uh, their Republican counterparts, sure, we don't we think that uh, deficits are bad, so let's raise some taxes. Now, it, it is the case that if you're a modern Republican these days you don't vote for tax increases on almost any circumstance. And in fact, the, one of the reasons for the, the current federal debt and deficits has to do with the, the tax cuts that were done in 2017. And Republicans would prefer, if they could, to make those permanent. They expire, I believe, in 2025. That's the other side of the story, mm-hmm. right? When we're talking about both sides want something. The Democrats mm-hmm. would, would like to solve the problem of, of too much spending by uh, raising taxes, and Republicans don't want to do that. The second thing politically we have to understand is that the Republicans are not really united 
on uh, their views. Some of them, I mean, I understand that Cy, like I, doesn't take a lot of what Donald Trump says seriously. The problem is that he is the former president of the United States, the, the current leader of the Republican Party, and has more influence over Republican office holders than almost anybody else in the party, so that there's a sense in which you have to pay attention to the positions he takes because he has enormous sway and power over uh, his fellow Republicans. But so some of some Republicans actually think like Trump does, although they may or may not say it out loud. Matt gets the closest. Others of them don't want to do this in a minute. They don't want default. They don't want they don't even want a shutdown. They just want to keep going. They want to keep doing politics. But the problem is that they have a caucus uh, in which they basically have to decide what's their best collective bargaining position. So they have to stick together. The Speaker of the House is working with an incredibly narrow margin in his own caucus. Remember, he had you know, 15 rounds or something in order to be elected speaker. And so he has he really has to think hard about what kind of positions he can take so that he can continue to be the speaker and continue to make bargains, not only on this legislation, but legislation down the road. They have to get their budget. In. So the Republicans are in a precarious situation, precisely because they have lots of different folks with lots of different desires and a very, very slim majority in their caucus. That's the political context. So that from the standpoint of the Democrats, the Democrats have to ask themselves, if if we make a commitment, can that commitment, can we make a deal with anybody? Is there anybody on the other side we can actually make a deal with? Because if it turns out that there's a five or six holdouts in the Republican caucus in the House, then they can't, we can't make a deal. So why should we bargain against ourselves? That's the political problem we face. The other uh, problem we face, this is going to take us into the legal issue, is this. One reason why the president might say, I'm, I am happy to announce now that I will sign any debt ceiling deal that you guys come up with, is because he might be worried that the deal would only extend the debt ceiling for a short period of time, and then he'd have to do it all over again. And so essentially at that point, they have him buy the, uh, add your uh, favorite part of the anatomy here. Uh, so basically, they're just going to keep doing this over and over again. And he has I to figure out. I think there was out, an Access Hollywood. Um. Yeah, right. <laughs> he, has to fig- he has to figure out, you know, what's the, what's the correct strategy because he knows that there'll be repeat players. The second thing is the president also may say to himself, why should I concede that I'll sign any debt deal put in front of me since there are alternatives there are legal, perfectly legal alternatives, having listened to Sai Prakash, to uh, signing the debt ceiling raise. One is just basically allow a shutdown, and then the markets will take care of it. The markets will crash, and then there'll be enormous pressure placed on Congress to come to a deal, and a deal will happen. That's what happened, actually, in October of 2008, when Bush pushed a uh, uh, an emergency measure to purchase uh, distressed debt, private debt. And at first, Republicans balked. They didn't want to vote for it. And then the market crashed 700 points. And then Republic- enough Republicans came around and said, yes, we will. Uh, we will vote for it. So that's another. And it's perfectly legal. It doesn't violate the law. It doesn't violate the Constitution. So there's I'm going to get to this. And then we'll come back to that point. The third is there are other alternatives that are perfectly legal, or at least I think are perfectly legal, issuing different kinds of bonds, console bonds. Uh, th- issuing a trillion dollar coin or however many coins that you want under the pla- under the statute. And then uh, finally, you can sell government property, which Akil already mentioned. You can even sell options on government property. Uh, you don't have to sell the property itself. You can sell an option on it. You could even sell a credit to Holtz if you wanted to. There are so many things you could do that don't require you to sign the bill. 
So as a legal matter, the president has no legal obligation right now to say, I will sign any bill that's put in front of me. But that has to do with a story about politics and repeat bargaining as much as anything else. So, um, you know, Jack, you mentioned a a number of things there uh, of these alternatives. So I'd like to ask you and Sai about this. Um, Let's assume for a moment that that the threat of default is real. I mean, I think we've agreed that when no, it's really a shutdown. But let's let's put that aside for, for a moment because people are concerned about some of these other things that you mentioned. Um, and just on that, the people being concerned, Jack did just mention one thing that I want to highlight for everyone, which is they're the journalists who have incentives to hype the thing every day, and then they're the markets. And so far, the markets have not reacted as if this is a crisis, even though the journalists are often presenting it as, as a crisis. And Jack is saying one interesting things thing, I think, which is pay attention to what the markets do. Because right now, I think they're actually in agreement with Cy and Jack and me that what we're really talking about is a shutdown of a certain sort, which won't be immediately catastrophic economically, although it may cause a Yeah, but, but I just also want to say it's not in anybody's interest to even have a short-term I agree. market crash. And the reason why is what will happen is yeah. Your your house loan interest will go up. Yes. Car interest will go up. Yes. It'll be harder to it'll be harder, uh, you know, to right. buy. I'm just saying, house. keep an keep an eye on, uh, you know, and if and if every day it's not necessarily a crash, if every day, if for 10 days straight, the market drops 150 points, 10 days straight, you know, 150 every day, 200 every day, then then start to pay attention. The cost of federal government's borrowing money may go up. Yes. And that makes deficits and debts even worse. Correct. Vicious cycle. Pay attention to those things. Yes. Those are the the metrics. Yeah. But this is not about what the law requires. Sai is right. That is that if the president illegally can basically just bargain, uh, refuse to bargain and you get a shutdown. But that doesn't help anybody in the long run because I think, well, this is my view, because it makes uh, the United States less desirable as a place to invest. And indeed, it is possible, although, you know, I'm not sure we're even close there yet. But if people in other countries thought that there were going to be a series of these shutdowns in the future and that the the Congress and the president were just not able to work together, they might think that the United States uh, debt is less reliable than they once thought it was. And that, in turn, would have a long term problem sure. for us. Great. So, so let me just point out what I think is a little bit of a flaw in, in this reasoning that was presented. Um so Akil is saying, look at Markins, they're, they're smart, they know, what's, they know what's happening. Okay, Jack is saying, and you, you didn't disagree, that a, uh, a government shutdown is a disaster for markets, that they're going to drop like a rock. Well, mm-hmm. if markets are so smart, I mean, nothing is happening now one way or the other. So whatever they're doing now that you say, oh, this is very important, is an anticipation of what's going to happen. So if they're so smart and they then they're and government shutdowns are disastrous, they should be going down. No, no, no. In anticipation. no. It may very well be that the New York Times is not smart. And actually, there's never a deal until there's a deal. OK, and that's what markets understand, you know, but but newspapers that want to sell things day to day, you know, may, may not. So I'm saying truthfully, yes, markets can be stupid and journalists can be stupid. But, you know, if I have to bet, I'm actually paying more attention to markets than to journalists. And you're the reason saying- why you, you can't reason backward this way, Andy, Andy, is because 
in October of 2008, the markets thought Bush and Republic, Bush and Republicans are going to come up with a deal. The Democrats are never going to are never going to stand in the way of it. It turned out they guessed wrong. There were enough Tea Party Republicans who didn't want to adopt the deal. That was a surprise. That was new information that uh, folks in the markets didn't have. Once they had that information, they responded by by dropping 700 points in the Dow. At that point, that sent a signal to the Republicans, the Tea Party Republicans, saying, uh, "Sit on your hands and have a bipartisan." and coalition join with Bush to pass the law. So right now, everyone is assuming, and the markets are assuming, that that a lot of this is just posturing, and they're going to mm-hmm. come up with a deal, and it'll be at the last minute. If it turns out that isn't true, that's new right. information the markets had not yet processed. Right. That's, that's, so, so in um, other words, they're not listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and now, so, so I, I'd, I'd like to get you to, to weigh in on some of the things that Jack mentioned from a legal point of view, constitutional point of view, or otherwise. Um, so he mentioned things like the trillion dollar coin and, uh, you know, federal land sales, that's different. I mean, I think, you know, the, we, we could argue that there's a right to, to sell the land. Um, but uh, something like the trillion dollar coin or options on the Statue of Liberty, you know, or whatever uh, for, you know, $10 billion <laughs> or whatever it might be. If we, in fact, were up against a threat of default. Okay, and so this is a lot, but because we're going against what we've concluded, but if we were up against it, and if we agree that the 14th Amendment says what Jack says it says, okay, then could President Biden mint the trillion dollar coin because the statute appears in its text to say that he can, or is there something unconstitutional about that that you that you know you th- you find unconstitutional, or maybe outside the realm of the statute, or that you think the you think it's okay, but the Supreme Court would not. Those are, those are difficult questions, and I haven't written about the coin idea, um, and I probably haven't done enough work on it to, to give a final answer. But I, I, the way I think about it is, there is a constitutional question, there's a statutory question, right? That the Congress has power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. What's the point of that clause? You might think the point of that clause is to create a circulating currency, and it's not clear that a trillion-dollar coin does anything like that. So you might wonder whether that clause is actually giving the authority or whether it's something else uh, that's giving the authority to create a trillion-dollar coin. Um, I think, in point of fact, the platinum coin statute is more about collector's items than it is about funding the government. If uh, you can read it this way, you know, this in sort of inventive way, you don't need to have any taxes at all. Why? Why stop with one trillion? Why not go to ten trillion? Why not a hundred trillion? You know, all of us can get a huge tax rebate on the taxes we've already paid and not pay any taxes in the future. I think this is a clever argument, um, a clever reading of a statute. But it, you know, you know, ironically, it's sort of we're I think reading it in a different way than we did before. Maybe we're switching sides. Right? I think maybe Jack was reading the 14th Amendment Section 4 provision, not just by reading its text, but by thinking of the background. And I think if you did that here, you might come to the conclusion that you can't use the coinage statute that way. Whereas if I was trying to to read the Section 4 statute sort of textually and saying, you know, for example, textually you can't, it's not about merely uh, questioning the validity of it, but merely um, doing things that make it uh, less, more likely to default. Whereas here, I'm saying think about the spirit of the statute. It's a, it's a collector's item statute. It's not a funding ongoing government operation statute. I think 
this and argument. And Sai, would your prediction would your prediction on the Supreme Court be? Because I think mine would that it would might very well say under the emerging major questions doctrine, which will be, I think, on display in the Biden student loan case yet to be decided. It was on display in a case involving the uh, EPA um, that was first prominent in a case involving FDA's effort to uh, regulate tobacco as a drug in the Brown and Williamson case. Do you agree with me that the Supreme Court will say this trillion dollar coin has such momentous consequences would give the president so much power. It's an elephant. An elephant doesn't hide in a mouse hole. It's a clever, textually permissible reading the statute, but the consequences are so great that we should expect to have seen lots of congressional discussion about this. And we didn't. And therefore, the president can't quite do that. That's actually what my prediction would be about this court, which is not dominated by Democratic appointees, by the way. Or do you actually have a different take? Because the Supreme Court takes Cyprakash seriously and Cyprakash takes the Supreme Court seriously. So what's your take on this? It's not an elephant. It's a dinosaur in the mouse hole. (laughs) I mean, again, people want to say mint the trillion dollar coin. There is no limit under this argument to what they can coin. And there's no reason for any taxes. Right. This argument is independent of the 14th Amendment. It is just saying as a matter of current statutory law, the Treasury can issue this coin and then it can tell the basically force, I guess, under the statute, the Federal Reserve to take the coin and then force the Federal Reserve to transfer money to the Treasury. It's a money laundering operation. Right. And using this statute to create a new to basically, you know, print money. Right. And and what would your view? And what, so I, uh, since Andy asked this other thing, and this was more my kind of yeah. screw idea rather than uh, Jack's clever idea, um, what about a president who said, oh, well, I'm going to actually start selling some of the national patrimony um, to, to pay debts, um, selling some of the land? Yeah, I don't, I mean, again, you need statutory authority. Congress has authority over the property of the United States. I've never looked at the property statutes to see what limits, if any, are placed on the president's ability or what authority, if any, the president has to sell national assets? I, d- I just don't know. Um, I'm assuming all those receipts go into the Treasury and, and then therefore mm-hmm. you don't need to issue debt because you have more receipts in the Treasury. Right. Um, so I think that's, you know, I mean, it, it's I, I'm assuming there's some authority, but I haven't looked at those statutes. Jack, your your take on these, because I know you've well, you've put some of these things forward as as, uh, you know, permissible. Yeah, I mean, Sai is exactly right. It's a, it's a commemorative uh, statute. That's what it's for. The question, I don't agree that that you never need to have taxes again. I mean, you need to have taxes for all sorts of reasons based upon having a sound fiscal strategy. Right. So, uh, so I don't think you can de- uh, derive from the existence of this statute that one never needs to pay taxes again. I think rather it's, it's a tool among other fiscal tools that are available uh, to the president, if you interpret the statute in a particular way, the reason why this happens, you should understand, uh, Andy, is that there is a statutory limit on debt. There's also a statutory limit on bills in circulation. Okay, mm-hmm. but there is no statutory limit on actions by the Treasury which lead to an increase in its accounts in the Federal Reserve. And so you should understand that we uh, we're not like European countries. We're not under the euro. 
we have our own currency. And therefore, as a matter of fiscal policy and monetary policy, we can take any number of steps that increase the money supply. And this violates no law. It may or may not be good economic practice. It might be inflationary, for example, yes. or it might cause uh, markets around the world to lose confidence in uh, the dollar. You know, these are all, con but there's nothing illegal about the idea of taking steps to increase the uh, uh, increase the bank account of the Federal Reserve. And the trillion dollar coin is just one gimmick among thousands of gimmicks. Give me enough time and I'll give you a thousand different ways of basically creating a system in which the Federal Reserve credits the United States accounts with more money in the same way that when a bank loans money to me or to Psy, they don't actually print money. What they do is they just credit my account with a certain amount of money. And in this case, it's the Federal Reserve doing it, just like another bank would. So there's, there's no legal problem here. The real question has to do with the ways in which you want to do it. So, for example, a, a court might hold that we won't let you go the route of the trillion-dollar coin. There's an interesting question as to how the major questions doctrine applies to the coin, because it's not a, an issue, a regulation. Right. The, most of the previous major question cases involved regulations issued by administrative agencies. But this isn't a, an administration. This is just an act. That mm -hmm. is, somebody goes and prints and mints it and takes it over and says, put this in my account. OK, fine. So there's a really interesting question as to whether major questions would even apply to it. I can I can make the argument that it could. I just want to point you this is a little different than the previous mm -hmm. cases mm -hmm. during the, the 2008 crisis. Uh, the Federal Reserve was given enormous new powers to buy and sell things and to do all sorts, you know, that's how General Motors got saved and how all this distressed debt was purchased. So those statutes, uh, I haven't looked at them recently, but I recall from studying those statutes is the Federal Reserve has an enormous capability that's been congressionally granted to do all sorts of different kinds of transactions, which an investment bank would do or uh, many other kinds of private organizations could do. So I would be skeptical that the power is not there if uh, the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve want to do something like this. What I am skeptical about, and here I think Sai and I might agree, is that if you repeatedly go to this well and use these various uh, gimmicks to increase the size of the accounts uh, in the Federal Reserve of the government, at some point people are going to notice. And either you're going to have an inflationary effect, which might be slow in coming, or you're going to cause a loss of confidence uh, in international markets. So that whether or not it would be perfectly legal to do it, uh, it might be a bad idea from the standpoint of fiscal policy. One last thing. There are a whole different set of really difficult questions about standing with respect to these internal actions between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. Because if all I do is I mint a coin and I walk it down the street and I say, put these, put this in my account, it's not clear who has standing to prevent me from doing it. In the case of an ordinary environmental regulation, which the major question applies to, well, clearly there's a factory somewhere or there is a business somewhere that's going to be affected by the regulation. It's not clear exactly how you have actual industry uh, injury uh, in the in the in the current sense that uh, that creates standing. I mean, I can come up with some ideas, but. It's more complicated. Yeah, than and that's why, I, Jack, I mentioned the, the case that hasn't been decided yet, the two cases about yeah. Biden student loans, right. which will have implications possibly not just on the merits on major question doctrine, and but also on the standing issue and whether states, for example, have special access to federal courts. As yeah. the, for example, the mere fact that the government engages in a foolhardy uh, venture that, that increases inflation 
ordinarily would not give anybody standing to challenge it because everybody is going to be affected by the increase in inflation. We'd have to be very creative in how we thought about how to get around the standing requirements in order to challenge it. But let me just say, I want to make this very clear. I am not advocating that the president engage in any foolhardy form of fiscal policy or any foolhardy use of the money supply in order to win his way in a political fight. I think that's just not what we should be doing. That's a, that's a, a prudential and economic question as opposed to a legal question, however. Well, yeah, I think if, I, if I can interject, I, I agree with most of what Jack said, but I, I do think there are two issues. One is their legal authority to issue this trillion dollar coin. And Jack focused on, you know, my claim that you don't need taxes. But the, the more specific claim is you could issue a $100 trillion coin, right? Yeah, and that would be a terrible and, idea. And then, well, I mean, Jack thinks that. But let me let me get to my point. If, if Jack's right, you could do that as a matter of law, not as a matter of the, forget the policy as a matter of law. That's why I think Jack's wrong as a matter of law. As a matter of policy, Jack thinks it's a bad idea. But he knows there are lots of people in this country that would favor that. Right. For various reasons, because they might think they'd be easier to spend money. He might oppose it, but other people would support it. And you are open. So you are opening up a Pandora's box once you just once you've coined the first trillion dollar coin, the, a box that I don't think you're going to be able to shut by saying, well, we had to do it then because the Republicans were hostage takers, et cetera, because they're going to consistently press for this. It's been raised in other contexts. It's not just been raised in the context of the debt ceiling. And so, you know, I don't think there's legal authority to to do what Jack is suggesting, and I don't think that it's going to end in this context. And your thoughts on who would have standing and whether a court would pause because it's not a regulation but an action, which are two of the other things that Jack said? I mean, I, I, I think the major questions doctrine would they'd apply it to questions of statutory interpretation as well. I don't think they're going to say that there has to be a regulation in order for them to apply the doctrine because – you know, if you don't think that elephants are in mouse holes, you don't think they're in mouse holes, whether or not they're regulations. I think Jack and I think you, Akil, have a good point that I don't know who has standing. Uh, of course, as we know, well, I'm imagining states might we just have to see, but they're special. Right. They're special solicitude toward states. And, and no matter what a president does, they're going to be states on the other side because they're going to be blue presidents and red states and red presidents and blue states. Right. We also know that standing doctrine is not static. And the the, the biggest defender of strict standing requirements is no longer on the court. So I don't really know. Um, if you believe as a justice that the president is acting lawlessly, are you more apt to modify or tinker with um, or disregard existing standing doctrine? And the, ob- the answer is obviously yes. You know, you two points on what you just said. I mean, first of all, you, you raised this point, like, well, you could do a $100 trillion coin. You know, you could do, and that would be really stupid. But, but I mean, I think the Constitution allows the president and Congress to do things that are really stupid. You know, that doesn't make it unconstitutional. The fact that it's a bad idea, um, you know, for, for one thing, or even, even against the statute, just because it's, it's dumb, you know? Uh, so, so, so that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, on the major questions doctrine. So now we're talking about, okay, the court has generally applied that to regulation. So Congress passes a law creating some regulatory power and, then, you know, to, to what extent does that regulatory, regulatory agency become, you know, a quasi-legislature itself, you know, or something like that? To what extent does it su- exceed the, uh, you know, what Congress intended it for, to be able to do merely by the magnitude of what it's doing? So that's one question. And now you're saying, well, 
uh, what about a statute? That's a little different. Um, the president or Jack saying, well, the president's taking an executive action. That's not really the same thing as a regulation. They haven't applied it there. So maybe it doesn't apply. And then earlier, Cy, you talked about the 14th Amendment being interpreted in the, under this, that, that, well, you know, with this business about, uh, you know, Confederate debt, maybe it doesn't apply to other things. So now you're talking about whether they're going to apply this major questions doctrine doctrine to an amendment. Now, I think those are, are very different questions. Well, I, Andy, I, I didn't mean to suggest that they'd apply it to the amendment. Um, what, and what I was saying about the $100 trillion coin wasn't really a policy-based argument. It was a claim that if you believe as some people believe, and I believe as Jack believes, that there's legal authority to issue the trillion-dollar coin, then you have to believe there's legal authority to issue the you know quintillion-dollar coin. That's all I was saying. Yeah, it wasn't I, I just want to say, I just want to say, Cy, currently there's a very old statute that limits the amount of bills that can be in circulation. If we repealed that statute, then the United States could print as many greenbacks as they wanted to, and that could have disastrous consequences. Right. Well, so no, I no, I understand that, but the, this is not about like. So I I might agree with you that they could issue a trillion dollar coin if they had a statute that authorized a trillion dollar coin. The, the, my point is the statute doesn't authorize this, right? It's not that it's not that you couldn't imagine a statute that did it. It's that that this statute is poorly read to cover the trillion or the hundred trillion dollar coin. So it is. A, and this is just a pure question of statutory interpretation. There is this constitutional question that we haven't touched is. Where's the authority to do this? And, you know, I think the more progressive people in the audience and these professors, you know, aren't, you know, are, don't have a narrow understanding of congressional power. And so they're more apt to think that Congress can, you know, it doesn't matter. The coins clause doesn't matter anymore after the Commerce Clause. No, no, I, I agree. It has to. I agree with you. So you have to have a, a basis. But, for, for example, the Trinidad coin is one, one gimmick. But as I was just saying, there are hundreds of gimmicks. There are hundreds of gimmicks, and if you give me enough time, I will find you a statute that allows the Federal Reserve to increase the the accounts uh, the accounts of the federal government. So one thing that's been floated is console bonds. Well, you know, we had console bonds in the 1800s. So the idea that there's no authority to issue console bonds, no. I actually think that console bonds are are, are create a po- a problem. Because for those of you who don't know, a console bond is a bond that has no face value, but is a perpetual agreement to pay interest, right? And because it's a perpetual agreement to pay interest, uh, right, there there could be a problem, just like the problem that Sai is mentioning before with respect to issuing, you know, quintillion dollar coin. You issue enough console bonds and you've tied yourself to perpetual payments of interest, which will make things very difficult for the government fiscally. But it's my understanding, again, from what I know, that, that it's legal to issue console bonds. Sai's objection is to the coin is he doesn't think the best reading of the statute allows the minting of a large uh, denomination platinum coin. Although the problem is that the the problem is that I take it he would agree that twenty five dollar platinum coins are okay, but that I could just mint enough twenty five dollar platinum coins, right? They don't even have to have be fully made of platinum. Just have you, know, you see what I mean? In other words, what he's objecting to really is the use of a perfectly legal method for a method for which it was not foreseen. It was not its original purpose. And it's not the amount of the denomination that matters. It's the purpose for which it's being used that is objectionable. You see? I did emphasize, and I know we're coming to a close um, soon, that the statute and its purpose 
was all about commemorative coins. Exactly. And you, Jack, agreed with that. Now, audience needs to know, I don't know very much about this, but I did try to carefully listen to, to folks on both sides. And that was an important point, I thought, that Sai emphasized and that Jack agreed with, that the purpose of this was about commemorative coin collections. Yeah, I mean, Jack said a number of interesting things. And, you know, he's right that there seemed to be a proliferation of devices used to avoid having to worry about the debt ceiling. And I'm using the word devices to not, you know, not color the conversation. He called it, he called them gimmicks. And I guess that's a weird word to use if you think that, you know, they're lawful. I, I kind of wonder why he's using that word, because, of course, the word suggests that there's something sketchy about it. Whereas I don't think he wants to, to imply that. Uh, of course, I, whether he uses the word or not, I think a lot of people are going to think there's something awfully sketchy about a lot of these ideas, right? Um, and Awfully, awfully gimmicky. Right. I, I use the word gimmick for a, a reason, Sai. Because you're an I honest believe, person. I believe yes, in you are an fi- honest person. That's right. I, no, I believe in sound fiscal and monetary policy. I think the United <laughs> States... I think the United States should basically pay its debts. It should plan in advance. It should it should not risk runaway inflation. There are all sorts and, of things it should and, do. And it should get off your lawn. It should get off my lawn. <laughs> but I also know that that uh, that what you have to do in these situations is you do workarounds to the existing statutory uh, situation. That's what they did in 2008. They used a lot of gimmicks, basically, to get the the country from uh, go falling into a very deep recession. And some of the things they did during that period can only be described as gimmicks. Uh, that doesn't mean they shouldn't have done them, uh, but it does mean that that's not what the laws were originally designed for. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know what they're actually doing now. In other words, supposedly they're engaged in a variety of extraordinary, extraordinary measures, measures. Right. Yeah, by which I would say gimmicks. Yeah, well, they're but, gimmicks. But I mean, I think that could be relevant if you got to court. You know, in other words, if they've been doing all sorts of things, you know, all along that are kind of in the same category as as the as these other things, just that they haven't gotten the publicity. And now you, you now you get to court and you've you've done, you know, 500 different things that, and you say, look, we've been authorized by Congress to do all of these different, you know, extraordinary actions. This is just another one, you know, and, and, you know, what makes this one unconstitutional and none of the others? Um, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, an interesting way to think about it for what it's worth. But anyway, okay. So, so we're going to wrap up, but I think that uh, um, it's useful to think about uh, in the end, I would say one final thought is when we think about the issues that we raised today, do you think that the originalist approach to these arguments, to these questions, leads one to a different resolution or a diff- uh, than, let's say, people that are living constitutionalists or take other approaches to constitutional analysis? Do you think that, that we've come to a different place than other by virtue of the fact that you've applied originalist thinking to these problems? Uh, I actually don't think so. Okay. So you don't think, for example, that your argument about the genesis of the 14th Amendment, you know, uh, is, you know, is fundamental to understanding it? That's not what I said. You asked me whether non-originalists would come to the same conclusion (laughs) that I would. And the answer is sure they would, because they're allowed to use originalist arguments just like I am. I see. But, uh, Okay. Okay, well, and Sai, your thought? I mean, I think that Jack's accurately describing what's going on in this context, that, you know, I think there's a, a there's an alignment between, you know, their approach to these 
questions from a policy perspective and their reading of the Constitution and or reading of the statutes. But I think it's also possible that the three of us, the four of us, could come to conclusions that are that that differ from our political priors. And and that's what makes us originals, right? We're not always just saying things that reflect our policy preferences, um, as opposed to people who just believe the Constitution is whatever we can make of it. And so I do think that on many issues, uh, Jack will say something about the Constitution that he disagrees with as a matter of policy. And I know that Akil will do that, and I'll do that as well, and I'm sure you will as well, Ian. Akil, your thought? It is true that on in very important issues, my constitutional views have diverged from my political views on things like abortion, guns, the death penalty, to pick three that are not small things in pop culture and the culture wars. Okay, so I think to summarize some of the things that we had agreement on, I think we, we kind of agree that uh, that depending on your definition of debt, we're not really looking at a default uh, necessarily in the near future, that this is really more a question of, of whether there'll be a government shutdown in order to protect the debt. Because absent a government shutdown, then we wouldn't be able to pay the debt. Uh, and just, which- Andy, I'm sorry to interrupt, but on the, just that point, just to put a pin in it, treasury bills prioritized, pensions prioritized for past services rendered, the other end, stuff that hasn't even, services that haven't even been performed yet, uh, the, the National Park Ranger, that's shut down. In between, how do you think about Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security? Some people think Social Security, oh, that's like a, a personal debt. It's like my personal bank account. It's I put money in and now I'm getting money out. In fact, it's not quite like that. And definitely other entitlements may not quite be like that, Medicare, Medicaid. So there are a whole range, and, and, and you earlier identified certain things that even if they're not debts, we'd need to fund in order to collect revenue, um, paying IRS officials, customs officials. So just to remind everyone, that's all embedded in your summary. Yes. And then on these extraordinary measures, I think we're, nobody wants them. Um, and we, we, I think, agree for the most part that it's mostly statutory questions r- rather than a constitutional question, although um, the major questions doctrine, I mean, it's a doctrine, but uh, you know, perhaps it has some constitutional implications. So anyway, I think, and on disagreement, I think there might be some disagreement on, on the actual meaning, let's say, of, of Section 4 of the 14th Amendment and the implications of it and the imperatives that it may impose on the president uh, and or Congress uh, and or the court. So uh, to be continued on that. Well, I really want to, I think this is great. And uh, thank you so much. I think the, be- the best part of it is I couldn't get a word in. So that's really a good sign. Um, so because uh, we know nobody tunes in to listen to me. So, but uh, it was great to have real, real experts um, with a very constructive dialogue. And uh, I know I learned a lot and I don't, I'm, I, I, one thing I haven't decided yet is whether I'm going to sleep any better tonight uh, or whether I need to start putting some uh, trillion dollar coins under my pillow. But, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. Thank you, Jack Balkan. Thank you, Sai Prakash. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, great.